My semester's over, my grades are tabulated. I'm writing, I've got a deadline uh, right before Christmas that I have to meet. So I'll probably be writing right up to Christmas for a chapter that I'm writing on 2 Peter. And then I start a writing project for the Broadman Holman World New Study Bible. And I'll be writing three articles for that. So my writing is uh, going to take up a lot of my Christmas. Okay, Matthew 14. And we're going to pick up at verse 22. And we're going to go down through the end of the chapter. Now, if you are visiting with us, we've been going through the book of Matthew, verse by verse. Started off with the genealogy of Jesus, his birth, uh, his baptism. He launches into his ministry, begins to teach uh, the Sermon on the Mount, which goes through chapters 5 through 7. Then we begin to see the miracle ministry of Jesus. And the thing, and then he goes from his miracles into teaching the parables. And now we're into a series of miracles once again. It starts right at this verse. John the Baptist has been beheaded. Jesus has fed the 5,000. So now we're going to pick up at Matthew 14, 22. And this is Matthew's version of Jesus walking on the water. And it's different than the other gospel accounts because it's the only gospel that tells us of Peter also walking on the water. Now why would Matthew include Peter walking on the water but the other gospels would leave it out? What does he want his audience to learn by that experience? Why would he include that in there? And what does he want us to learn? Uh, that the other gospel writers uh, don't even touch upon. Well, you might be surprised at the answer of why he includes Peter walking on, on the water. So, the story starts back on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. Jesus is on the shore. He's just fed 5,000 people, miraculously. There are 12 baskets of leftovers. And uh, today we come to the aftermath of that story. So look at verse 22. Immediately, Jesus made, and that's the key verb there, He made His disciples get into the boat and go before Him to the other side. This would be to the western side of the lake. While He sent the multitudes away. Now the verb in the Greek that's translated made here, Jesus made His disciples get into the boat carries the idea of compulsion. Jesus compels them to get into the boat and go to the other side, indicating that if they had their brothers, they would have rather stayed on the shore and glowed in the aftermath of the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. But Jesus says, no, I've got another thing for you to do. You need to get into the boat. Because he has a lesson for them to learn through an experience. Okay? So it's important that you see this. He wants them to learn something else. So in verse 23 it says, And when he had sent the multitude away, this would be the 5,000 that he fed, 
And as we were riding in this morning, Lynn said, well, how would he get rid of 5,000 or 10,000 people? And I said, well, he puts the disciples in the boat. That sort of signals to the crowd things are winding down. And uh, it's been a long affair. I mean, Jesus has ridden across the lake. He's ministered all day long. It's nighttime. You know, he probably just says, hey, I'm tired. Let's go. We have to break it up. They have to get home as well. These people have homes to go to. So it says, when he sent the multitude away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when evening came, he was alone there. So finally, Jesus is able to get off by himself. This is what he wanted to do originally back in verse 13. You'll remember, he comes to the lake, crosses the lake, to get off by himself because he's heard the news that John the Baptist has been beheaded. And uh, he's grieving over this. This is his cousin. And he's thinking about his own fate. Could this happen to me? And finally now, he's just able to get quiet, get off by himself, um, hear God speak to him, and he stays there a long time by himself on this mountaintop. Look what it says in verse 24. But, now we're going to have a sort of a shift in scene. But the boat was now in the middle of the sea. And that would be the Sea of Galilee. Tossed by the waves because the wind was contrary. So they are in the middle of a lake, in the middle of a storm. Jesus is up on the mountain and he's quiet. Uh, this is the second storm that we see in Matthew's Gospel. There was a storm back in chapter 8, remember where Jesus says, Peace be still? Uh, this is a different storm, but it is a raging storm. And I want you to notice a few things about this event in verse 24. First of all, it says it's in the middle of the lake, or the old King James says, many furlongs. Uh, furlongs. That's, they're about four miles across the lake. Um, that's about halfway across. Now normally it takes about two hours to get across this eight mile span. They have been there for many hours already and they're only halfway across. And there's a reason for that. It says in verse 24, because the wind was contrary. They were, uh, the wind was in their face. They, the more they rode, the more they tried to get across, they were just not making the progress that they should have made. Now how long have they been on this lake? Well look what it says in verse 25. It says it's the fourth watch of the night that Jesus goes to them. That's between 3 and 6 in the morning. Now he sent them away when it was dusk. How long have they been on this lake? They've been on this lake. You know, it's in the spring. They've probably been on this lake 7 or 8 hours, maybe more. So if they've been on this lake 8 hours, they're only halfway across. They're facing some difficulties. These are professional fishermen. And I know what it's like because I've been stuck in traffic, <laughs> rush hour. And uh, the other night, I left the school at 5 o'clock. It usually takes me 30 minutes to get home from downtown to my house in Rockwall. And if the traffic is good, I can be home in 25 minutes. It took me two hours. Four times the normal amount of time to get 25 miles. So that's what they're up against. And here comes Jesus walking on the water. Now look what it says in verse 25. Now at the fourth watch, between 3 and 6 in the morning of the night, Jesus went to them walking on the water. 
And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, this is sort of an understatement, they were troubled, <laughs> saying it's a ghost. And they cried out with fear. They're struck with terror. They think they see a phantom. They think it's a ghost, but it's, it's not a ghost. It's not a vision. It's not an individual thing. They all see it at once, this figure walking across the water. And they're literally struck with terror. But immediately, he's going to try to relieve this fear. Jesus spoke to them saying, Be of good cheer. It is I. Do not be afraid. Now I think if I heard that, that wouldn't make me feel any more calm. What are you? I mean, what kind of response is this? <clears throat> it's a ghost! What's that? It's a ghost! And the waves are just going, you know, they're not moving at all. And they think they see a ghost and hear somebody say, Be of good cheer! <laughs> you almost hear him say in the English accent, Be of good cheer! You know, <laughs> It's his eye! <laughs> but uh, notice Jesus says two things, one positive and one negative. Be of good cheer, that's the positive. Do not be afraid, that's sort of a, a negative. So uh, he's just trying to calm them down, and he identifies himself. He says, it is I. Now this is really a key statement, because in the Greek, this is ego eimi, which literally translates into I am. So this is the way God identified himself to Moses in the burning bush. When Moses, Moses said, well, who should I say sent me? He says, tell him, I am sent you. Jesus says, be of good cheer. Don't be afraid. I am. And uh, they may have thought of that verse when they hear Jesus say I am. And I'm sure they thought of another event in the Old Testament, which is found in Isaiah 43. And I'd like you to take a moment just to turn there, because it's a very fascinating passage. Isaiah 43. And uh, right at the beginning of that chapter, let's see if this doesn't resonate with you. I think it did with the disciples. So when you get to Isaiah 43, look at verse 1. But now, thus says the Lord who created you, O Jacob, meaning Israel, and who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you, which means I have rescued you. I have called you by my name, your mind. When you pass through the waters... I will be with you, and through the rivers they shall not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, nor shall the flame scorch you, for I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. So, Jesus says, you know, I walk through the waters, I will rescue you. It's like Jesus is, is reenacting, he's living out this verse. It's like the verse is unfolding right before their eyes, and here Jesus is walking in the across the water, and he says, don't worry, I'm going to rescue you, I am. And so I think that that verse is probably significant to the apostles, and they probably remember that verse, because Jews memorized large masses of Old Testament scriptures. And so Jesus says in verse 
27, he says, it is I, in our English translation. They recognize the voice. They've been with him for quite a while. They recognize the voice, but they don't recognize him. All they can see is some sort of foggy, ghostly uh, figure out there in front of them. So at this point, Peter enters the picture in Matthew's Gospel. And he chirps up. Because he always chirps up. He always says something. Peter answered him and said, verse 28, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. Now how would you like, that's not the kind of response you normally would give, is it? Well, if it's you, let me, give me the ability to walk on water. You think that he expects a positive answer to that? I don't think he does. Maybe he does, but I don't know. But look what it says in verse 29. So he said, come. He says, okay, come on. Now, uh, I think Peter might be a little shocked here. But if I give Peter the benefit of the doubt, maybe he thinks, if that's my master... He can walk on water. He'll give me the ability to walk on water. After all, the disciple is to mimic the master. You learn by doing what the master does. If he walks on water, maybe I'll walk on water. I'm throwing that out as an option. Uh, So look what happens. Jesus says, come, in verse 29. And when Peter had come out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw the wind was boisterous, when it was continuing to blow at 60 or 80 miles an hour, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out saying, Lord, save me. So uh, he fails. Uh, but at least he knows where to find help. And he cries out and he says, Lord, save me. And immediately, verse 31, Jesus stretched out his hand and he caught him. So Jesus comes to the rescue. He answers that request. And he said to Peter, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? Now, when I look at this story, I think, uh, well, I see a couple things. It looks to me like when Peter steps out, he operates by faith. Doesn't it? Why would Jesus say, you have a little faith? Seems like he operates by faith. But then what happens is that doubt sets in. And so when I look at that, I think, well, that's our experience. One minute we're operating by faith, and the next minute there's doubt. Why is that? Why? What happens? What causes this? Well, in Peter's case, we know what causes these doubt. He gets his eyes off of Jesus. He gets his eyes off the solution. He gets his eyes on the problem. The problem is the wind. That's why they're not making any headway. And that's what brings him down. He gets his eyes on the problem. Now, I believe that faith is meant to sustain us. Ideally, we should be walking by faith every day. And we should be walking by faith 100% of the time. But oftentimes what happens is that 
We lose courage and we waver because we get our eyes off of the Lord and we look at the circumstances and we start to fail and we start to sink. Now, all Peter had to do was what Jesus commanded him to do in verse 29 when he said, come. All he had to do was take Jesus at his word. But there's a point when he looks at the wind and he starts hearing the wind rather than trusting Jesus' word in that situation. And so I was thinking about this the other day, and I was saying, you know, Peter's first steps on the water is not very much different than our first steps on land. You ever think about that? You have his parents, new parents, they have a baby, maybe it's a year old, whatever, and uh, they put it on its feet and they encourage it to walk. Come to daddy, come on, come to daddy, come to daddy, oh that's it, come on! You know, you've done those crazy things. And the baby goes, takes three steps, and it starts smiling, proud of its accomplishment. And then suddenly it stops, and it wobbles a little bit, and it gets its eyes off its parents, and it looks around, and then down. And as it starts to go down, many times the parents will grab it so it doesn't fall too hard. Well, that's what's happening to Peter. Now, I'm not putting this out as a theory. <laughs> because I know this doesn't fit in with science. It fits in with miracles. In the miracle realm, maybe walking on water is just as easy in the natural realm as walking on land, if we have faith. Now, I said I'm not putting that out as a theory. I'm just thinking out loud here. But what happens is that Peter's experience... Uh, illustrates the power of both faith and doubt. Faith is very powerful and so is doubt very powerful. And this story is designed, I think, to help Matthew's audience and us uh, when we struggle and face the test of life. It tells us how to do it and how not to do it. Now, the question I ask when I'm reading this passage is, why in the world does Jesus rebuke Peter? Why does he say, oh you of little faith? I mean, after all, the other eleven are still in the boat. They had no faith at all. I think if I, if I were Jesus, I'd say, hey Peter, that's a good sign. Hey, next time you'll get a little bit further. You're on the road to a life of faith. Wouldn't that what you would say? I mean, look at the other people. <laughs> They're holding on for dear life in the boat. Uh, so, I'm trying to figure out why in the world is he, uh, in a sense, rebuking Peter. And I think it's because there is uh, a bigger purpose to this event than just to talk about faith and doubt. Matthew includes this story in his gospel because he wants to show something else. In this, this is a real life event. This happened. But it points to something beyond itself. It's actually what we call, what I've talked about in the past, 
It's actually an enacted prophecy. It points to Peter's future. And it describes what the future holds for Peter. It foretells of his fall. And then his restoration. And you remember the story. How he blurts out. These others may forsake you. But you can count on me. I'll walk with you all the way, Jesus. Oh, I think that's really what's happening here in the boat. He says, well, these guys might stay in the boat. <laughs> Just say, come, I'll come. That's Peter putting his big mouth, big foot in his mouth. So he says, Jesus, the others might forsake you. Remember when Jesus was in the garden? He says, others might forsake you, but I'll never forsake you. I'll stay with you all the way. Well, what happens? He gets into the courtyard, and this little maiden girl says, oh, you want his oh, I never knew the guy in my life. He denies him. <laughs> See? He fails. When does it happen that he fails? Between 3 and 6 in the morning. Jesus said, you'll deny me three times before the cop crows. That's when it crows, between 3 and 6 in the morning. The exact same pattern that you see here. And then what happens? After he failed, Jesus restores him. And he restores him on a seashore. When he says, Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. And he restores Jesus into the fellowship. I think that that is the, the meaning that goes, there's a literal meaning. I mean, it happened. These are events that happened. But it points to something beyond this event. It points to Peter's failure and his restoration. And not only that, I'll go a step further to say Peter is the first person in a sense. He represents the new, he represents Israel. He's a Jew. And guess what? It's the same pattern that Israel has followed. When God creates the nation, he says, you're my people and I'll bless you if you'll keep my commandments and hear my voice. And then he said, we will, back at Exodus 19.6, and then, they don't! They fail. But guess what? In the end, God will restore them and all Israel will be saved. Scripture says. So you can see that there's more than meets the eye to this story. And Matthew include, is the only one that includes this story in his gospel. Now look at verse 32. And when they got in the boat, the wind ceased. Why? Because the purpose, its purpose had been accomplished, and there's no longer a need for the storm. That's why we know that there's a lesson behind this text. So the storm just ceases here. So it says, the wind ceased. <clears throat> and when those who were in the boat came, they worshipped him. That means they recognized that Jesus deserved to be bowed down to, and they said, truly, you are the Son of God, which is a Messianic title. They recognize Jesus as the Messiah. Just uh, two chapters later, Jesus will say, who do people say that I am? And uh, Peter will say, some say you're Elijah, John the Baptist, come from the dead, Jeremiah, or some other prophet. He said, who do you say that I am? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. This is the first proclamation of that statement, that you're the Son of God. You are the Messiah that we've been looking for in the Gospel of Matthew. 
So it tells us that Jesus is the Messiah, and he's the one that's going to be restoring not only these men, but even the nation of Israel. Now the scene shifts again. Look at verse 34. And when they crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret. And this is on the northwest shore of Galilee. They finally get there. And uh, the wind has blown them. They've drifted up sort of toward the northwestern section of the shore. And they land there. And when the men of that place, and probably it's now daylight, when the men of that place recognized him, they sent out into all the surrounding region, and they brought to him all who were sick, and begged him that they might only touch the hem of his garment. Did you ever hear that before? You heard that back in chapter 9, didn't you? When the woman said, I want to just touch the hem of his garment. They hear this miracle man has come. They don't recognize he's the Messiah, the masses of people. They don't, they're not sure exactly who he is. But they know he performs miracles, and they just want to touch the tassels. On the four corners of the clothing, Deuteronomy 22 instructed men on the four corners of their clothing or their prayer shawl to have these tassels. And that was just part of God's plan for their clothing, to set them apart. And they said, if we can just touch the hem of his garment, we'll be healed. Now, there's nothing about a garment that heals anybody. In Acts, it says a very similar thing. It says some people just, they said they took aprons and they rubbed them on Paul's body and they, they took them to people and the people were healed. Nothing about that piece of cloth. In other places it says they just wanted to stand in the shadow of Peter and those who stood in the shadow of Peter were healed, it says in the book of Acts. Uh, shadows don't heal. Shadows aren't even made of anything, are they? Here's a case where faith produces the healing. Just touching the hem of the garment produces the healing. Look what it says at the end of verse 36. And as many as touched it were made perfectly well. So, they bring him all who are sick, and this is a somewhat of a Gentile area even, begged that they might touch the hem of his garment, and as many as touched it, not one left out, walked away at least able to limp. No, it doesn't say that. Were made perfectly well. Now here, what we have is faith without any element of doubt. <laughs> In Peter's case, you had faith that gives way to doubt. Here you have people that aren't even Jesus' disciples, just the crowd, and they exhibit perfect faith without mixture of doubt. And Jesus is concerned about all the healing people. He doesn't care uh, what their station in life is. He doesn't care what their ethnic background is. He doesn't care what type of sickness they have. It says that all of them are healed. And so what we see is we get a, in this passage, we have a glimpse of, of faith, the importance of faith and the danger of doubt. The importance of faith and the danger of doubt. And we can put ourselves right in this boat and whenever we're about to lose our nerve, because of the circumstances around us, and faith starts to flood in, then we need to do what Peter did. 
which is call after Jesus and say, rescue me, and he'll be there. But there is a better pattern, and that pattern is just trusting. Just taking what he's worth. Just say, if I can only, not even get to him, just, just get to the edge of, of his garment and touch it, I'll be saved. And so Matthew includes the story of Peter in here because it's not only a story of faith, it's a story of when faith gives way to doubt, Jesus is here to rescue us. Uh, next week we'll pick up a chapter 15 where he talks about that which defiles us and how it comes from within and not from without. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, we, we look at a passage like this and we can relate, some of us can relate to Peter. <clears throat> we want to do bold things in your name. And we give it the old college try and then we, we begin to waver and we fail. And some of us are like the disciples in the boat who don't make any efforts. Just stand there, not knowing what to do, sort of paralyzed by the test of life. And then some of us are like these, these others who are simple folk. Have no theological agenda, just needs, and they, they don't know where to turn, so they hear about you and they turn to you. Oh Lord, help us to be like these people. Help us to realize that whatever the situation is, that you are the answer to life's problems because you're the Son of God. In Jesus' name we pray.